0: This evening's talk is about metta the heart's release and beginning with some words from the Buddha from the Samyutta Nikaya It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love we will develop love we will practice it We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha, Dhamma, the teachings and the practices are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation which is classically called a Brahma Vihara a divine abiding the radiant warmth and openness of metta unconditional loving kindness and acceptance unconditional friendship the experience of connection and appreciation that isn't fraught with clinging, attachment, and not necessarily even a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of the mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us off to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity, this quality of metta is present when concentration and mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and kindness. So beginning with an old story. It said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build the 500 monks 500 huts for them to stay in during their rains retreat and who also were very happy to um, keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and they began practicing vipassana, began practicing insight meditation. It's said that the unseeing beings, the forest devas who lived in this same forest, became fearful of the monks and felt actually quite put out of their homes when they saw that in fact the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling devas, these forest-dwelling beings, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and emit some uh, very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks uh, uh, leave leave what they considered to be their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which then broke their concentration, broke their samadhi, and disrupted their mindfulness. Some, it said, even developed fevers and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing and all of them felt that it was just impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and related their tale, to which the Buddha responded. My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to the forest again saying that it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a true weapon of protection. And it said that it was at that point that the Buddha offered them the metta teachings and practices. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes and so armed with the metta teaching and practice they went back to the forest, that same forest. For a while, continuing to experience their feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and vigorously practiced metta. Soon there were no more fearful sights or sounds and whereas the devas had previously been quite hostile towards the monks, their anger, their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks metta. And in fact feelings of great respect and welcome, and even reverence began to be the devas' experience along with a sense of being connected like with family. And then the inclination arose with these devas, these forest-dwelling beings to provide an environment of safety to protect the monks from particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that they could practice meditation peacefully. after recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta. It's said that the 500 monks at some point began practicing Vipassana meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that all of them, every one of them, became Arhants, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of Metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless. Fearless with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called this the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for, that brings a connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and is felt through a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, A group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be peaceful. In the process of developing, expanding and deepening this energy of metta, of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences begin to pale. They're, of course, important on one level. But within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, my experience of human kindness is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to the sunshine warming our heart, the sunshine warming our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience in fact of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever had this experience, this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth just given to us freely. So, for example, a very simple, very ordinary experience of mine. A few days before this retreat began, I walked into the post office as I do almost every single day to pick up my mail. And someone opened the door for me. And this happens actually quite regularly at my post office here. Someone opened the door for me that I didn't know and I'd actually never seen before at the post office. And we looked at each other. As this person opened the door, we looked at each other and smiled at each other. And I thanked her and felt this very warm connection between us for a moment. Just that. This is unconditional kindness offered freely. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a much more overt and stronger energy than my post office experience. This unconditional warmth of loving-kindness. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves, And through offering it out to others. It's a circle, it's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give is always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given, given freely, it's a choice a very natural choice that others make and that we make and it has an effect on us and it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from. The other three divine abidings. Compassion, Karuna in Pali. Appreciative or empathetic joy, Mudita in Pali. And equanimity, Upeka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. In 1986, when I was in China, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or two ancient pictographic symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one of the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards, or we're inviting, the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And so continuing with the metaphor of breath, Metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the text, it's often spoken of as non-ill-will. The absence of ill-will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill-will in relationship to all of the phenomena phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill-will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of will, ill-will in all directions. here in retreat how often might we think the person next to us or maybe the person on the other side of the room how often might we think that their practice is so much better than ours or maybe the comparing mind says that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am that felt judgment That they're better than me or I'm no good or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement just look at that person wherever they are in the room that person nodding away, restless, moving around obviously this isn't metta and in fact we're creating a separation me, other, the heart, the mind is contracted and it's uncomfortable. We mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation, metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature, even in relationship to what we think of as our self what we're identified with and what we're attached to either in a positive way or in a critical way as our our body, our thoughts ideas, opinions, skills our knowledge metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well a heart, a mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings not only those that we're close to in our lives those that it's easy to care about or those that might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us in some way a heart, a mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what could be called immeasurable impartiality this capacity, being able to connect and to care for any being, all beings. And some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the mind enters the heart the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it. And move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, it's non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you are all here practicing or about to begin in an intensive retreat practice in the very specific ways that each of you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and very penetrating mindfulness. Some of you are also working with the practice of metta in relationship to purifying its purifying and healing aspects. And with this you're also learning at least to some degree that metta practice also aids the development Of our capacity for a clear deep and strong concentrated mindful attention as our capacity for metta grows and blossoms there's an unwinding there's an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear states of anger judgment states of separation disconnection these strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body, they begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, as he taught through dialogue quite often, someone once asked him what can make me love? And his response was you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important to me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or even approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like and even might not condone. So metta is acceptance on a deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. There's no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together, it's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe, as Gandhi called it. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature. And that it's unconditional. No conditions needed for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, this world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has, or we could say is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary in this world. The writer Dina Mitzger says this, she says, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly, she says. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. He said, Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen this is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, our words and actions, if this is what our thoughts, words, words and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma or the karma that's created will be wholesome, and healing, both personally and in ways very beyond, far beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. I'd like to spend a, a few moments uh, now exploring some expectations of what we might think of, the think that the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many people expect metta to be a a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect, it's impossible to look for something that we don't know, something that we've maybe never experienced, or to look for something that we may in fact have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But actually we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. Metta is not sentimental. It's not at all romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. In this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's the abiding stillness and peace. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect with ourself and in relationship to others, directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly, with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection, and it's not so easy. To get there, there are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, that need to be seen through, and to let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is cont- to continue to unfold reaping its most amazing and its most freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this very clearly. As some of you know, Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief dis- disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. The story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anath- Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready and the Venerable Sariputta then rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha keeping him to his right and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left one monk spoke to the Buddha saying, the Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away the Buddha called another monk and said, go monk and call the Venerable Sariputta saying, The master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogolana and Venerable Ananda went around to all of the monks' quarters, lodgings, and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him sat down to one side and when he was seated the Buddha said one of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded Lord I remember the discourse you gave twelve years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus and blood. Yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness, one who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology but it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk hit him and walk on without an apology Lord I have practiced like the water people use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus and blood And yet, for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, i practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean. It carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air. Vast, exalted and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body. The movement of the body in the movement of the body. The positions of the body in the positions of the body. The feelings in the feelings. The mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I'm not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. Among who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord I am not such a monk." Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point the accusing monk rose from his seat and arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and with his head on the ground bowed at the feet of the Buddha saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. The Buddha then turned to the Venerable Sariputta saying, forgive this foolish man, Sariputta before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And the Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. Then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines really a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old. I was giving her pieces of banana And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a huge smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago now I was reading a book that was about and by a 102 year old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98 He decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98 and then he wrote a book about himself. And it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. I'd like to read a little bit of this book now at one point George is having a conversation with Richard he's the man who helped George write this book and they're talking together about George who at the age of 101 was still living alone and as George says doing just fine so Richard's speaking you're not really alone people call and come by all day long there's a community of people that care about you You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. And George, speaking. That's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all these years, every person I met I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good, just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy with what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. example of the stability and beauty of a heart, a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue on a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left lunch out on the back porch with her dogs left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George from his book speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in, and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I was no animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? She said. I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people, I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back to through her grandparents. I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally in a cold tone she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. and then George goes on to say I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it in the transformation the opening into the greatness of heart there's a great letting go a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in, taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this this conditioning, these habituated patterns of self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times. But it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart that comes from the heart of metta in closing the talk I'd like to um, share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow This comes from a book called On the Res, and it's a true story. Sue Ann was born on March 15, 1974 on the Pine Ridge Res- Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters had always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that uh, she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and then later uh, cruising around in cars were completely out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to this very small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes that stance. When Suanne was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Ral Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a good friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. And his response was, you have to understand, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in. And she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she really encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another they did them all. Cross-country running and track and volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations Treat their Indian neighbors decently and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, Usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every single chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Leeds, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorps went to play a basketball game in Leeds. And Sue Ann at that time was a full member of the team. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead, lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run out onto the court in a line, take a lap around, a lap or two around the floor, shoot a few baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And then the home team would come out and do the same thing and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, would go first. As the team was waiting in the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. And then the lead high school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out of the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. So Anne quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious and said, don't embarrass us. Donnie told her, don't embarrass us. And Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. And she came running out onto the court dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped as she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and suddenly they were bumping into each other. Court Zamiga, who was at the rear of the line, had no idea why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball, and then she stepped into the jump ball circle at the center court. Facing the lead fans, she unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off and draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota Shawl dance. Su Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She'd competed in many, many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest. And show off all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was pow powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Suanne started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Suanne dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and very fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud and she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and then laid the ball right through the hoop with the fans now cheering very loudly. And of course Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Su Ann's dance at center court in the gym at LEED. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's lion's roar. some words from Hafiz called The Sun Never Says Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me Look at what happens with a love like that, it lights up the whole sky There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. Do what seems to come quite naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handled the situation very different, differently from the way that you used to. The natural effortless expression of a clearly focused mindful awareness, loving kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say to somebody, to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done so easily but it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. I'm closing the talk this evening with a, um, an excerpt from a poem by Mary Oliver. The poem is called To Begin With the Sweet Grass. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out from my confinements though with difficulty. I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment, somehow or other. I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. And then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. we'll close the evening together, this part of the evening together, um, with chanting the sharing of blessings, which for those of you that are just arrived, uh, we do this at the end of each Dhamma talk. You have a printout of it somewhere. Let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration Through the goodness that arises from my practice May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue My mother, my father, and my relatives Sun and the moon And all virtuous leaders of the world May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss, and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Chris has an announcement. Uh, The person who was ringing the wake-up bell and the first sit bell has departed at the end of part one. And so we need, uh, if we're going to continue having those bells, we need someone to volunteer for both, either one or both of them. So the wake-up bell would be rung at five, quite vigorously, all around in front of every door. And the five... Thirty sit bell would be rung about five twenty around the building. Are there any volunteers? Okay, thank you. Anybody any wake heard? uppers? Any Waker wippers? uppers? I, I can do it if I have like a good alarm clock, which is I don't have Yeah, I have an extra alarm clock. It seems to be pretty good. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Nancy, <laughs> one more. Yes, thank you. One more thing. I, I was uh, told that the bell that we rang for this, we we did a little too often. So, except for the wake-up bell, we probably only need to ring once or twice in each hallway. You know, what? not to belabor it. But. Actually, upstairs, two bong bong. It's loud enough. In the inside, upstairs. Hallway. Upstairs, yes. So yeah. you walk from the that sound door. It's quite echoey up there. It it reverberates. It's pretty strong. Mm. You're up there. Yeah, you hear it. On the other hand, I think outside it tends to disappear. Yes, it does. You can't ring it more loudly outside. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have one uh, quick announcement for the people that just arrived. Please make sure you look at the note board, which is uh, around the corner here, just on this side of the dining room. Not in the dining room, but the little hallway there. Look at it. couple times a day please and uh, I will be uh, offering interviews uh, tomorrow afternoon and uh, all the new people are up for that and a couple of the people that have been here uh, all along so check and see what your time is for meeting with me tomorrow, thank you